Last week we were talking about, starting with verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in affliction, in hardship, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, and then verse 6, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. And verse 7, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Um, there's some discussion by the scholars about whether the uh, Holy Spirit here is a reference to the Holy Spirit, capitalized, as the New American Standard has it, or whether Paul is discussing being holy in spirit, in other words, the human spirit. But having read the different possibilities and looked at the Greek and the context, I think that the New American Standard has it correct because you have a sort of an inclusio. If you look uh, in the list, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love and word of truth, in the power of God, it seems to me like the Holy Spirit and the power of God are sort of bracketing, bracketed here, and that those two phrases are used together quite often. So I think the New American Standard interpreted it correctly by saying the Holy Spirit rather than having a Holy Spirit as far as your human spirit. Now, here we have a, a bunch of God-given qualities that are signs of God's power at work in the Apostle Paul. And these qualities in verse 6 are purity, knowledge, patience, kindness in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Now, purity um, is only used, this word is only used two times in the New Testament, the Greek word here. And it's also used in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. So let's turn to that, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. It says here, But I am afraid, lest that the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the, here's our word, purity or simplicity, no, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Uh, yeah, this one's apt. Aplotetas, and I didn't write this one down. So uh, I can't be sure about which one of those it is. Probably the second one because it's translated purity again. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear with this beautifully. He's being sarcastic here. Okay? In other words... The, the Corinthians are too easily deceived. And they're not, um, they're, they're being led astray. They're easily led astray from the purity and simplicity or sincerity, uh, sincerity or singleness of heart uh, in their devotion to Christ. And they're willing to listen to other gospels, other, even another Jesus. Did you know that the that the word Jesus is not unique only to, you know, we only use it in English to refer to the Jesus of the Bible, but the word 
in, the original was probably Joshua. It's the name Joshua, Yeshua. And the, uh, there were a lot of Joshua's around when Jesus was walking the face of the earth. But because of the uniqueness of Christ in English, we just use the term Jesus. Now, um, jo- uh, but there's nothing that would stop a spirit from taking on the name Jesus. All right? And people who get into spiritism often talk to spirits that go by the name Jesus. Jose Silva, who invented Silva mind control, which is basically a means of gaining spirit guides. He had two spirit guides, a male and a female. One was Jesus and the other was Mary. So he really raised. He went right to the top. But see, this could be another Jesus. So in our passage, then, we're concerned about purity, probably meaning integrity, and uh, it could also have to do with financial matters in some contexts. Later in Second Corinthians 8 and 9, when Paul talks about money, he talks about the importance of money being handled in a manner that showed integrity and doing things in a way that would not bring any reproach to the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about in all of these qualities, that he's living in a way that would not give any reproach to the gospel. And then, um, in knowledge here, gnose, it could mean knowledge of God. He doesn't say in the context what sort of knowledge he's talking about. Patience and kindness. And so we see the fruits of the Holy Spirit that are signs that someone is a new creation. Remember in, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, it says, if any uh, anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. And that manifests, this newness of being a new creation, is manifested in the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, there, there are things that are indicative that the Holy Spirit is really at work in a person's life. And w- w- one of the most important things that would be true that would give someone evidence that they've been truly converted or born of the Spirit, is that there would be a development of these godly characteristics, and particularly fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on, as they're listed in Galatians 5. And so Paul is listing things here that would be signs that the Holy Spirit has worked. So purity, knowledge, patience, kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in genuine love, another fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Now, genuine here means unhypocritical. So, somewhere in the King James, doesn't it talk about love unfeigned or unfeigned love? What does it say in the King James in this verse? 2 Corinthians 6, 6, when it talks about genuine love. Okay, it's the same thing. Oh, that's the new King James? Okay, I was thinking of the old King James. Do you have it? By pureness and knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. Love unfeigned. I thought that I remembered that phrase from, from the King James. Love unfeigned. Well, what's feigned? What's that? Yeah, fake. <laughs> Pretend. 
So unfeigned would be not pretending. People can pretend a lot of things. The, the fruit of the Spirit isn't just that you always have a smile on your face like some TV preachers. Okay? The fact that somebody's always smiling isn't proof that the Holy Spirit's at work. Uh, uh, this is more the, the sort of things that would happen that as you live life day by day by day, it's, it's what God is developing in you, developing fruit, so that you actually are a new creature, and it becomes evident that that is really the case. Robert, if you could look up Romans 12 and verse 9. Romans 12:9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Yeah, it's the same idea of love unfeigned as King James has it. Love without hypocrisy. It's, it's real love. Now, as you realize the agape love in the Bible, what that would be like is, especially if you look at John, First John, agape love is real. Unfeigned agape love is love that takes action in certain concrete situations. It says uh, that if you don't, you say you love God but you hate your brother, then something's seriously wrong. And it says, don't do not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. So genuine love is love that takes action in, in, in concrete situations that would show that this was the real uh, love that was poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Okay, I have some cross-references. We've got a lot of empty chairs, don't we? That daylight savings time is just... I think they should do it on Friday night so that so that the churches don't have to suffer. <laughs> yeah, let the bars suffer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's go this way and then back this way. Um, if, uh, Romans 15, 19. Uh, 15, 19. Romans 15, 19. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, uh, Eric, 2 Corinthians 12, 15, uh, Barb, Ephesians 4, 32, Ephesians 4, 32, and Bert, 2 Timothy 3, 10. 2 Timothy 3, 10. Okay, Romans 15. Romans 15:19 in the power of signs and wonders in the power of the spirit so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yeah, he, he said he fully preached the gospel uh, Romans 15:19. That's a proof text by the way for people who call themselves full gospel. Have you heard that phrase? Yeah. It, well, it's a misinterpretation of the verse, but what what some people say is that because it says in signs and wonders uh, and, and throughout this area, I fully preach the gospel. Some people say if you don't do signs and wonders, you, didn't, you don't have the full gospel. Yes, and it, so your gospel is lacking if it doesn't have signs and wonders. And so, that's, so when somebody says I'm full gospel, what they mean is I'm going to do signs and wonders. Now... That doesn't necessarily mean they actually can do signs and wonders. They, but that means they try very hard. 
it's all try to try to get signs and wonders. But but actually, uh, we did that passage Dick and I did on, the, on our radio show, and the fully isn't describing the signs and wonders. It's modifying the fact that he went through this area and preached in all of the major cities. That's what he meant. Modifies his trip, not his signs. Yes. I was going to say the the greatest sign and wonder there is is when a sinner becomes a saint. Amen. And I actually I have argued that that's the greater works. Another, you know, the passage in John. Uh, greater works than these. What is that? Twenty-one, twelve, or something. That one again is a major proof text for the full gospel idea, and. I, I have talked to people recently that they, have, they believe that. They believe that somehow the church has to do greater signs and wonders than Jesus did because that verse, otherwise that verse isn't true. In spite of the fact that in 2,000 years of church history, not yet has one person done greater works than Jesus, not even close. And the greatest work that Jesus did was predicted his own resurrection from the dead and then was raised from the dead, and appeared to many witnesses. That's by far the greatest work that's ever been done by any religious person. Now, Jesus is God incarnate, ever. So if somebody literally could do greater works than Jesus, then they could claim to be the Messiah. Yeah, they, could, they could claim to be God. Yeah, they could say, well, I'm God incarnate, because I, 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 I'm going to predict my own resurrection from the dead like Jesus, and then pull it off. And therefore, I could be the Messiah. So that's really a very absurd uh, interpretation of that passage. And the greater works there, I wrote an article on that. You can go on cicministry.org. You know the fastest way to find things? We have them listed. We're working on putting subtitles, and I'm going to try to group them. And it's kind of a long-term project because there's like 100 and I don't know how many articles in there. And so if you're trying to go on our website and you want to find something, I do this myself, and I know what's on there, is I go in that little search box on the top. And don't, don't waste time scrolling down, looking, looking, looking. Just go in the search box, and in that put greater works and click. And it'll, almost, that, it'll bring up a list, and generally that article you're looking for will be the one on the top, and you click into it. And so there's an extended discussion, uh, a whole article expounding that one verse, showing that the true interpretation of it is the fact that there's, Jesus links this because I go to the Father. There's going to be something different because of what happens as he ascends, and then there's Pentecost. And then what happens is the gospel goes out to the whole world. Whereas when he was on the earth, it was a limited area, uh, and limited people that were preaching it, but the gospel spread to the whole world. And as you uh, said, Corley, people are converted. And I believe that's the proper interpretation of the passage in John. <laughs> okay. Uh, fully preached. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, that, uh, that's part of his apologetic with the um, Corinthians. They, they wanted eloquence and sophistry. And Paul had 
a message of the crucified Messiah. Right? And that's all that he proclaimed because that's, that doesn't mean he didn't have anything else he taught, but that was the centrality of his message was Christ crucified, and he was going to preach that whether they liked it or not. I was just I was reading some bad theology last night. Uh, somebody gave me a book they wanted me to read, and I've been working on it for months because it makes me so mad I can only read about two pages and I've got to put it down. And basically, it's a, a, a theologian claiming that if God is actually in control of his own universe, then God's a wicked God. And so he just goes around in circles trying to prove that God's not in control of his own universe. And, and because of supposedly saving God from being implicated in the problem of evil. So the last chapter I was reading last night, he, he's taking all these verses like Genesis 50 and verse 20, and, and which is a great passage. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And then he spends three paragraphs going in circles trying to say it doesn't mean what it says. God didn't really have any control over anything that happened, and so... Uh, that verse doesn't mean what it says. And then he went into the one where it says, no one can come to the Father, come to me unless the Father draws him. And then he says, that doesn't mean what it says. It, it, it just means woo or attract. Okay? And then the proof text for that was John, where it says, where Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me. And that was the proof that the term draw means attract. Now, that is such, that's like not even trying. That is such bad theology, it's not even close to trying. Because just look, plug in the, the word. If I'm crucified, everybody will be attracted to me. Yeah. And, and that is, that's, that's as bad as this thing of greater works. It's, it's patently untrue that no one has ever done greater works than Jesus. And if they did, they could claim to be the Messiah. And it's patently untrue that Jesus on the cross universally attracts everybody to God. As a matter of fact, it offended people. And, and, and yeah, and they all ran away. And the biggest offense, especially to the Jews, as it says, that Christ crucified is an offense. And it still is to this day. Absolutely offensive. I was just writing about that. I, I finished another chapter uh, yesterday. And I, I was talking about Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifle. And the thing, the number one uh, uh, complaint in the early church when the Christians began preaching the gospel to the Jewish people, remember the first apostles were Jewish, the number one complaint of the contemporary Jews was that Christ was crucified. In other words, what kind of Messiah would be crucified? And the complaint that Trifle said was that it says that whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. Okay, and and no one can possibly be more blessed than Messiah. Who would be more blessed than a Jewish Messiah? He'd be the most blessed person that ever was. And so you're telling us that this guy that was crucified is our Messiah, and he's cursed. And uh, what Justin did with it was very interesting. Justin's argument was this. He was saying that God told Moses to make a brazen serpent. All right? And Justin said, now why would God do that? Because it's a sin to make a brazen serpent. Right? The Ten Commandments. 
Yeah. Well, you can't even have a graven image, according to... He says, so, so here God told Moses to do something that normally would be sinful, make a brazen serpent. Now, why did... So, and then what he did was when he put it on this pole, the tree, people looked at it, and they were healed. And so he said, and he's good, good theology, Justin Martyr said, Messiah was... was Remember Jesus said, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up? That Jesus bore that so that we could be saved. And, and so he was, that's his argument. So my point is this. The cross doesn't universally attract all people to Jesus. It's just flat out, patently untrue. So rather than forcing an interpretation that I say is an absurd, it's absurd interpretation, and it makes the Bible contradict itself, because then 1 Corinthians 1 is in contradiction to John chapter 12. But what it does mean is right, after, right in John, after those Greeks came, that was the crucial moment in John. There was a turning point in the narrative of John. When those Greeks came looking after Jesus, that's when he started... Now's the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now's the time the, sun, the seed will fall into the ground and die. And then he says the cross, and I will draw. draw. The word there means drag in the Greek, all men to me. Meaning all those who are saved will be saved through the cross. And that's how God will bring them and effectually bring them, not just make Jesus look attractive. Because the fact is, if Jesus would have avoided the cross, he would have been very attractive. Remember uh, Palm Sunday before the cross? They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he who is, comes in the name of the Lord. And then what happened after that? They killed him. And then they rejected him. So, we should always do our best to understand what every passage says, not twist it, because there's certain theology we want to get away from. We need to have the Bible give us a theology, not take our theology and use it to distort the Bible. All right. Um, good lesson in life, by the way. No extra charge. Second Corinthians 12.15. Okay, that's it. Yeah. I uh, will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Yeah, Paul's amazing... Uh, uh, willingness to lay down his life. And the Corinthians kept mistreating him. I was thinking about that. Remember last week I, I cited a passage in Acts as part of my application where it said where, God, where the Lord himself appeared to Paul and told him to stay in Corinth because the Lord said, I have many people in this city. Remember that passage? I was thinking about that, and I didn't mention this in my sermon, but in the context of our study here in Corinthians. Because the thing that seems so strange as you study 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, and you piece together what's going on, is why did Paul keep working with these people? In other words, you would think that the way they treated him, he would just wash his hands of Corinth and go somewhere else. Just he did that with the Galatians. He said, anathema to you Galatians. You know, uh, you, you listened to a different gospel and, and he rebuked them and, and didn't even thank God for them. It's one of the few churches Paul didn't thank God for was the one in Galatia because he was so angry that they went back into uh, legalism. Now, but he stuck with the Corinthians and 
here's my thought I had when I was looking at that last week. Perhaps that incident in Acts gives a little bit of explanatory power to why Paul was so patient with the Corinthians. Because the Lord himself said, I have many people in this city. So Paul believed that there, that there were many true Christians in Corinth. Because the Lord told him there was. And he was willing to be patient. And he said, I'll, love, I'm, I will, I'll be expended for you, even though the more I love you, the less you love me. That's how committed Paul was to the church in Corinth. And so I just thought about that, and I wanted to share it with Sunday school class because we've been studying Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. And he believed they were really Christians, so he's willing to lay down his life for them because they were the Lord's flock, even though in some cases it's hard to imagine because they were so, the way they were, bad. <laughs> okay, uh, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay, so there's one of those one another passages. Be kind and compassionate to one another. And then uh, 2 Timothy 3.10, Bert. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. <laughs> Amen. Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Okay, so that's Paul's story. Now let's go to verse 7. Continuing how his ministry was, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Now we have the power of God is... Easily, uh, it's God's grace and God's power that does this. That one's easy. But we have these genitives that always create a little bit of ambiguity. The word of truth can either mean a word that comes from truth or a word of which truth is the content. But you really don't, in that case, end up with a whole big difference. So you have the objective genitive, the subjective genitive. One time... uh, Carla asked me about the genitive. She was doing a study in the Bible. So I, I went into my Greek grammar, Dana and Manti grammar, and I, I made PDFs, and they listed seven or eight different ways that the genitive can be used. And I sent it to Carla. I said, see if you can figure it out. And I saw her later. She goes, nope. <laughs> that did not help. That made it harder. Now there's seven kind of genitives. Uh, but, it, but it, interestingly, it works in Greek the same way it does in English. When you say, um, let, let's take one that uh, the word of faith people twist. There's one where it says the faith of God, using a genitive. Have the faith of God. And because it's a genitive, it can mean faith that God possesses, God's faith, or it can mean God is the object of our faith, right? Well, the word of faith people, and there's a King James verse where it actually translates it and puts the genitive, although uh, uh, the other versions tend to not do that because they know in this case God has to be the object. So they say have faith in God. Well, the word of faith say, see, you need to have God's kind of faith. God had faith. So faith becomes a principle in the universe that's greater than God. 
It's a metaphysical force. And so God used faith to create. And the way God used faith was faith in his own words. Because in Genesis, God spoke and creation happened. So therefore, anybody who has the faith of God can create like God did. And that's what they mean by having the God kind of faith. Now, they're using the ambiguity of the genitive to make that doctrine. But the way one gets away from that is by pointing out that the Greek construction is exactly the same in the phrase, the fear of God. All right? And so if they're going to be consistent, then they'd say, God has fear. And so you should have the kind of God kind of fear. You're going to have the God kind of faith. And they would never do that because to them, fear is a sin. Because Job had fear and he caused all his own problems because he had fear. So the ambiguity can create problems, but it really the English brings out the same ambiguity. But the context makes it pretty clear in most cases. Now, in this case, the word of truth, I would believe, is a reference to the gospel itself. The gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians. So he, he, he speaks the truth of God, which is the gospel, and he does so by the power of God. And God, uh, the power is, is God's power because the words are God's words. And so the most powerful thing that we can do is accurately proclaim the truth of the gospel because the power is in God and in his own word. And that should help us rather than thinking that we have to come up with a, 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 some sort of a very sophisticated system that somebody might see as attractive. Now, the weapons of righteousness for the right and the left is a military imagery. And it probably means fully equipped in righteousness. And the right and the left would be the idea that generally, if you're going to be fully equipped, you have the sword in your right hand and the shield in your left hand so that you have an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon. Does that make sense? So that means that he is fully equipped in in the righteousness. Now the question would be, what righteousness is he speaking of? Anybody got any ideas? I have here Romans 6.13 for a cross-reference. Let's see what it says. Romans 6.13 it says, And do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. So in that case, the weapons of righteousness would be similar to the idea of instruments of righteousness, in which case would be our bodies that we present to God so that we might not have sin ruling over us. So if that cross-reference helps us, it sheds light on this passage, 2 Corinthians 6, 7, then the type of righteousness would be what God is actually working in Paul's life. But, you know, but, but remember, the imputed righteousness and practical righteousness are intimately connected to one another. You don't have one without the other. If you, in other words, if you have not been crucified with Christ, Romans 6, and therefore having the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is his, that's put in your account, 
you don't have the ground to present your members as instruments of righteousness either. So these things are intimately related, but some still different. It's sort of like positional sanctification and practical sanctification. If you're not holy in Christ because God declared you holy, you won't actually live a holy life either. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, let me uh, uh, do some more cross-references. Robert, you find people to read these. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the first one, excuse me, is Isaiah 59:17, And then you're going to go that way. Then we'll go to Keith. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. And all the way over here to Larry, Ephesians 6, 13 and 14. Okay, the first one is Isaiah 59, 17. Uh, for he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on a gar- gar- the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Yeah, that, that uh, military imagery comes from Isaiah 59. And Paul picks that up also in Ephesians 6. Okay, the military imagery. And it's interesting that the, the, the armor that we have is all related to the gospel. The helmet of salvation. Uh, see, what was it? The belt was truth, was it? Breastplate was righteousness. So it's all gospel. The gospel is our protection. And the more gospel-oriented we are, the better off we are as far as being uh, protected and equipped. I have a uh, quote of this Garland. He says this, The following... The following reference to the power of God reveals that he's thinking in terms of some divine force working in his life and ministry. The Spirit fosters these virtues, and they are evidence of his indwelling presence. Walking in the Spirit is the foremost requirement for effective ministry that will not be discredited before God and is a mandatory credential of ministerial character. Interesting. Walking in the Spirit is the foremost requirement. It's... Uh, I was on the radio being interviewed by Brandon House on Thursday. And one of the things he was asking me about was an article that I wrote for for his ministry, Christian Worldview Network, about why certain churches were hiring pastors and giving them big money, even after they'd had numerous scandals and moral failings and so on. And so I wrote an article about that, and my claim in the article was that that reveals that we have a worldly idea about what leadership means. In other words, we're looking for that all-star, the person that has all of these talents like you would have in a CEO. And the reason baseball stars and basketball stars and CEOs and Hollywood movie stars get paid a lot of money is because there aren't very many of people. There aren't enough. There aren't enough people with that kind of talent to go around. And so, if you want somebody with, like, it's like in the top one half of one percentile of persons with talent that's able to do certain jobs, that's what you, you got to pay them. Okay. So if you want a Rod playing third base, you got to give him twenty-five million dollars a year, because that's what a Rod gets. Now, I'm not saying that I think that's a good idea, but it's just the way it is. Now, take that mentality and transfer it into the church, and you get the idea that, uh, that if I'm going to have a Joel Osteen, 
He's got to be, he's the movie star. Okay, and I'm not saying he's had moral failures. I've never heard of any. But I read some articles about pastors that had done terribly wicked things. And then they bring them back into the church and everybody says, that's just fine. Because they're looking for that talent. Now, what I was saying to Brandon is that the reason that we're having so much problems in the church today is that we've got the idea of credentials wrong. We've got the, in other words, the qualities that we're looking for are the wrong qualities. And I agree with Garland. What we should look for, for elders and pastors, is people, and anybody in the ministry, is people who walk in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that, for one thing, you're crucified with Christ, all right? You have the imputed righteousness of Christ, not your own, and that you show a dependence upon God for everything that you do. And that comes evident in how you spend your time and whether you're, you're, you're under the means of grace. Yes? I think that concept, the charismatics would agree they want to have a leader that walks in the Spirit, but their whole concept of what walking in the Spirit means is non-objective. You should probably live a pretty good life, but you need to have an anointing that you can do mighty works. And their walking in the Spirit would be whoever does the greatest miracles is the one who's most anointed walking in the Spirit. And what we would take that to mean would go back to 1 John 4, where you know what the Spirit of God is, who's walking in the Spirit by their confession, because the Spirit that's from God confesses Jesus Christ come yeah. in the flesh yeah. and preaches a gospel message and preaches about the forgiveness of sins, and his life is evidence that the forgiveness of sins is operating there because he's not sinning, not in the way he's not participating in practicing sin, and that would be walking in the Spirit according to our definition. Yeah, remember that one sermon that I did, Faith at Risk, about how to detect a true work of the Spirit? There's verse after verse after verse after verse that says that you confess Christ. And, and so... A person walking in the Spirit would be continually depending on God, preaching the gospel, confessing Christ, and, and sitting under the means of grace. Uh, Ryan wrote an article about walking in the Spirit that had to do with the means of grace. So, uh, so I'm agreeing with Garland. Walking in the Spirit is the foremost requirement for effective ministry that will not be discredited before God. It is a mandatory credential of ministerial character. It somebody, by the way, came in, and I was talking with a couple that wanted to tell the story about how their church met total demise. It actually ended up just closing its doors. And, and they didn't tell me all the details, but they said, you know, the obvious problem was the leadership was just wrong and, and doing bad things and wrong things and mistreating people and, and, and being abusive. And the thing finally just folded. Well, see... Paul was the opposite. He said, I'm willing to love you and lay down my life and be expended for your sakes, even if the result is I'm not loved back. Now, that's, I read that verse once when I was getting really discouraged about the ministry, and I ran across that verse, and I didn't immediately get encouraged. <laughs> okay. okay, so i got to love everybody, even if they don't love me back. Oh. Lord, I thought you had something more positive to put put on my plate today than to read this verse. But that's what it says. And uh, it's a sign of the Holy Spirit at work that 
uh, anybody, minister aside, anybody in the body of Christ is willing to lay down their life for another or to show unfeigned love. He says it ensures that ministry will be carried out in purity. The qualifications for apostleship are not to be sought in grand external displays. If manifestations of the Spirit are genuine, there will be a visible effect on the internal character of the apostle. In summary, Paul assumes that the gospel is discredited by those ministers who are lustful, impure, ignorant, overbearing, indignant, rude, unkind, and hypocritical in their love, cultivating those whom they think can benefit them in some way. Such ministers have neither the Holy Spirit nor the power of God. Wow. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to depend on him so that that would not be true. Uh, good warning. Okay, Keith, you had one? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for this destruction of fortresses. And continue in the next verse. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to obedience uh, to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Okay. So what's he talking about there? Demons? Principalities? Bad, bad teaching, I think. Is what yeah, bad teaching. Thinking, thinking that's contrary to the true knowledge of God. Speculations. Belief systems. Satan's, Satan is behind it. I'll say that for, for a fact. What does the Bible call Satan? Deceiver? Liar? Father of lies? Right? And he, he speaks the lie. In fact, Jesus said whenever he speaks the lie, John 8, 44, he speaks from his own nature. So it's Satan's actual nature to lie. So is it any surprise then that spiritual warfare is a battle of ideas? Speculations, lofty things that rise up against the knowledge of God. What does it say in Isaiah 14. Remember Isaiah 14, 12 through 15? It talks about Lucifer. And he says, I will, I will, I will ascend, I will exalt. So there's this willing self-exaltation that led to the demise of Satan to be cast down. And so these thoughts, these high lofty thoughts that are against the knowledge of God are certainly Satan is behind it, but the, the, the battle against them is through this means that he says, the word of truth, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. So we are literally in a truth war. If you haven't read that book yet, you're missing out. The truth war telling you that is one of the better books I've read in a long time. Okay, Larry, you had a verse. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. That was the armor, right? Yeah, Ephesians 6, the armor of God. All gospel material. Ryan preached a nice sermon on that when he was in uh, <coughs> Ephesians. 
<clears throat> about the armor of God. I have a little discussion here about this genitive, uh, the, the weapons of righteousness, the genitive construction. This is, uh, Gar- again, Garland. He gives three possibilities. It can be a genitive of content. I mean, weapons consisting of righteousness. That would convey the idea that our righteousness becomes our weapon. The parallel term in Romans 6.13, where Paul urges them to present their members as instruments of righteousness, as contrasted with instruments of unrighteousness, suggests Paul may have in mind human righteousness. Two, it could mean weapons of righteousness could be qualitative genitive and mean righteous weapons. But the term righteousness more likely refers either to God's righteousness or human righteousness rather than simply having the force of an adjective. Third, finally, weapons of righteousness could be a subjective genitive and mean weapons provided by righteousness. And uh, this last option understands the righteousness to be God's, and he says is the best interpretation. So that's what this scholar thinks. Um, it's God's righteousness, and, that, and that's a wep- that provides weapons. God has, or Paul has just referred to the power of God, and the righteousness of God is far more potent as a weapon than human moral qualities. Yeah, he makes a good point. I can be wrong. <laughs> so that's why you should study. Yes. Uh, Years and years ago, I finally asked a Sunday school class, what's the meaning of the word righteousness? Okay. And nobody knew. Really? They had some hints, but they weren't sure. I looked it up in the dictionary right there, and it said quality of rightness. Okay. And I would interject quality of godly righteous rightness. Right. And my Bible says righteousness is justice and judgment. Yeah, actually, the, the term righteousness and justice, uh, I believe, are the same, depending on the context. And w- well, one way I like to uh, uh, understand it is when it talks about what God does for us, God's righteousness is right standing before God. Okay? So when, we, when, we, when we're talking about imputed righteousness... The idea is right standing before God. That was the big battle in Luther's life that finally led to his conversion. It was because he could not understand how he, he, his sinfulness was so awful in his own heart and mind that he could not find any right standing before God. And he tried everything the Catholic Church had to offer, and he was still tormented by the idea of God's justice. And then he found... Romans. <laughs> and Luther saw the passage in Romans 1 about the just shall live by faith, and that he realized that this was God's righteousness that was given to him through the gospel. That, dear ones, started the Reformation. And the sad thing that's going on, if we think about Reformations, there are three Reformations. There are three movements in the church today that are advertising themselves as reformations. Three movements. The purpose-driven movement, the new apostolic reformation, and the emergent. They have a big emergent website that's called Reformation, something or another. Um, Not one of those movements is concerned to preach justification by faith. They may say they believe in it, but it's not important enough that it gets any pulpit time. 
Yeah, so I call them not reformations, but repudiations. So I think that the first reformation is, is the last one that we needed as far as if we're going to have another one, we should just be going back to that, justification by faith. Because in the end, oh yes, uh, Rick, by the way, that clock died, so we're going by this one. This is just, the game clock now. Just uh, circling back to the, the whole concept of a church shutting up its doors and whatnot, uh, there's a mega church that has had a wildly successful Easter production and uh, where they have the, the, the crucifixion of Christ depicted in a drama. And this particular church, member after member after member, keep, keep coming up to the elders and the pastors and, and saying, you know, you guys continue to support this unbiblical uh, doctrine that, that they're practicing kind of in the back rooms. Well, this year... They have 12,000 seats available for this production, and they've only and they, they sell for $15 a pop or $10 a pop. But they've only sold 800 out of the 12,000 seats. And in prior years, they've done, gone, they've done even more shows instead of you know they've done like probably 20,000 seats. But now they've only sold 800. And so now that now they they bang their heads and they said, well, fine, we'll just give it away for free. So, but but I mean, this is a, an example of. Something that used to just draw thousands and thousands of people, and now all of a sudden they've only sold 800 tickets this year. That's odd. Well, um, the gospel is everything. (laughs) You know, if we have the gospel, we've got what we need. And the older I get, the more simple it all seems. It all boils down to the fact that Jesus Christ died for sins and once for all the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God and if we have the gospel we've got everything and it was so important to Paul that even if people had bad motives but yet preached the true gospel he could rejoice that Christ was preached that was in Philippians but if they have a wrong gospel he anathematized them the Galatians he says, who bewitched you? Fools. You're fools and you're bewitched. But in Philippi, he said there were some, he told the Philippians that there were some who were preaching the gospel out of vain glory, but at least they were preaching the gospel. Now, why would Paul say that? Because if you have the gospel right, God will use it to convert people. And if people are converted, they will, I mean, they're, they're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and there's nothing more important than that. But if you don't have the gospel right, then no one can be saved. And if no one can be saved, you can't have a church. Because you can have churches, but the only way anybody's really added to the church is by being saved. It says God added to the church those who were being saved. So true church growth only happens through conversions. And when God adds people to the church, they are permanently in the church, whether they come to one particular fellowship or another, because they're part of the church universal. So i got about three minutes. Anybody got a quick question? Did I teach that well? Larry. When you was talking about the uh, full gospel earlier, yeah, uh, if you could put some terms on that uh, in terms of like, was it, you know, where you preach, you do greater works. Is that in 
quantitative or qualitative or a mixture of both? Oh, as far as the greater works? Right. Uh, the, the definition of what he meant by works is the key, okay? And what the greater works is, I'm claiming that it's a proclamation of the gospel is done by the entire church throughout the church age because that's how God is building his church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He died for sins. He ascended it into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, ruling, all right? And so when we proclaim the gospel... That's what is adding the members of the church to God's work of grace that saves people. So that's the greater works that he meant in that one passage. Now, the full gospel idea is, depending on what they want to say, now it's used by different people. Some people say, if you don't have signs and wonders, you don't have the full gospel. Others say that if you don't have Latter-day apostles and prophets, you don't have the full gospel. Okay? They're, they're, They're claiming that People like me that just preach the gospel are truncated and deficient. So um, that's what they mean when they say full gospel. So I would never use that term to describe myself because it's been poisoned. Well, I I heard it, but I never understood what it meant. And when you said greater works, I was thinking, and tell me if this is wrong or not, but because Christ was limited to that one area, greater works in terms of uh, quantitative would go out, you yeah. know, would be greater in numbers and greater in coverage. Yeah, and greater in the number of, 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 of people. Going to the Gentiles, he just went to the house of Lashi, the house of Israel. Ideas like that. That's how I believe that that verse should be properly interpreted. Now, um, we that clock doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so... Uh, it's nine, according to my. No, oh, mine's wrong too. <laughs> okay, we're gonna just make a decree that it's ten o two, and we'll see upstairs at ten thirty. 